I overprepare. And by the time I prepare for Wall Street or something like that, I've done so much preparation that I'm going to be the most confident person out there. At least that's by attitude. And at least for this powerlifting, I'm so scared of messing up that I'm going to, you know, stretch and practice and, you know, try to perfect that technique as much as possible. Welcome to Iron Summit, where we cover topics about health, fitness, and general performance through the eyes of former elite Division I wrestlers. All right. Well, today we have a very special guest. Um, it's his fourth decade as a Wall Street analyst. He's been rated number one all-star Wall Street analyst in the last four years in a row, according to an institutional investor magazine, was the first analyst to testify uh, to con Congress for the financial crisis. Um, he's constantly on Bloomberg and CNBC and is a lifetime endurance athlete that turned into a powerlifting athlete recently and certified meathead on Iron Summit, Mike Mayo. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I, I guess just to start, just kind of want to talk about your fitness background. Um, shout out to to the Bone Talk podcast that you recently did. Thought it was really interesting, you know, kind of your background in endurance athlete, you know, doing a lot of cardio stuff and basically through osteoporosis, figuring out, you know, powerlifting and, and going to the extreme opposite end of that. How, how did that happen throughout, you know, your lifetime? Well, uh, spoiler alert, uh, right up front, I had osteoporosis three years ago. I was, my bones were like the weakest out of a thousand people and I no longer have osteoporosis. I'm more like one out of 20 people. And clearly, um, you know, my, my doctors helped, but the strength training, the powerlifting played a part in me no longer having as brittle bones as I had before. Uh, so I am a lifelong endurance athlete, uh, ran my first marathons, uh, 40 years ago. Um, and then I went from long distance running to cycling and would do centuries, hundred mile bike rides and my whole life spin classes. It was cardio, cardio, cardio. And I would sometimes wander in the weight rooms, but really four to five years ago, and when I really, truly started uh, strength training, and especially after um, two and a half years ago, when I broke 10 bones in one not huge bike fall, wasn't the biggest, I did go over the handlebars, but I broke eight ribs, a collarbone and a finger. And then I'm like, okay, enough of that. Let's, let's uh, go full blown my main course strength training and my side course cardio. Yeah. And what's, I think it's interesting is you were doing all this cardio, um, cause you were trying to be healthy, right? Like this was what you thought was making you healthier in a lot of ways. You know, I, I know it's your first pillar of strength, but look, I grew up uh, in the seventies and there was this book called the book of running and go ahead and run long distances. And people started buying all these running shoes and it was always cardio all the time. And I thought I was getting healthy. My heart's fine. As it turned out, you need to work out based on what your body needs. And for me, it's strength training. As I've learned, and I know this is older than uh, your peer group, but once you hit the age of 40, you start losing muscle mass. Uh, between the age of 40 and 80, you can lose half your muscle mass, as I learned. Uh, and just general mobility. I see people in the gym, they're 25 or 30, out of college, they're a college athlete. Oh, it's hard for me to weight lift anymore because this hurts, that hurts. Uh, so overall mobility. So 
Yeah, it was a long time for me to figure out that strength training was important. And I feel more mobile now than I did when I was 10 or 20 years younger. Yeah. And I want to be, I'm not, I think cardio is amazingly important. I think actually we can talk about this more. A lot of powerlifters would benefit from maybe a little more cardio, but it's just very interesting, um, you know, how your path led you from, from the, the extreme cardio side of things to the, to the powerlifting side of things. And on that note, so how did you, I mean, it's one thing to say, Hey, I'm going to lift weights to try and increase my bone density. It's another thing to go, Hey, I'm going to compete nationally in powerlifting. Like how, how did that progression happen? Well, you, you both are elite athletes and you have to have a little glitch in your system to push yourself as hard as you do to try to try to win. And I, I, this is my fourth decade working on wall street. So I try to have high performance. I try to be ready every day. So it's, I switched to, um, strength training and powerlifting and I'm not into half measures. I'm into full measures and whatever I do. And it's not, I'm on wall street, especially it's like, you're in it for the gold star. You're in it for the medal. I'm like, let me mark myself to market. That's a financial term for see what, you know, your securities are worth. So let me mark myself to market by competing. And I competed in my first meet, um, you know, two years ago, uh, last fall. And uh, just to see how I would do. And I told over a hundred people uh, and I got disqualified. I failed all three squat attempts. And it's like this whole room of people. I felt like I was on a Broadway stage or something. I, I just basically freaked out and didn't know where to look and didn't know how to think about it. But they, they let me finish the meet. I finished it with my disqualification. I was like, you know what? That was a really good experience, even though I failed, which is hard for me to say, because I don't, I'm still trying to deal with failure. Um, and so I thought, let me mark my progress. And then I went ahead and did the next meet and did better. Uh, and then I broke uh, over those course two years. But for me, I wanted to break the thousand pound mark, thousand pound club. So I was able to do that. And then I went to nationals. I dropped a weight class. I was like you wrestlers. And I dropped 10% of my weight, but only 2% off my total. And now it's, I have actually gotten it back. So it's just a way for me to track my progress. Um, and um, I'm going to compete uh, in the Arnold. Somehow I, I got in the Arnold Sports Festival March 1st, and then I'm signed up for nationals again in Salt Lake City in early September. That's that's awesome. And I think something super interesting, I don't know if you've like talked about this ever, but just how do you go from, I mean, most people that I've seen just tend to like, they like certain types of fitness and then they kind of stay around that type of fitness most of their life. And it seems like you like swung the pendulum from, you know, one side of extreme endurance stuff to the other side of like extreme weightlifting. And so how was that change for you? And was that like just naturally one day you just, it just clicked and you loved weightlifting or you learned to love it through, you know, what it was doing to heal, you know, osteoporosis and bone density, um, or, or what was that progression for you? Well, it's very unusual. I think the pandemic certainly, uh, catalyzed my transition, but first of all, you have these peer groups almost social clubs, people you do different sports with. And I didn't abandon them. I just don't see them as much. Imagine seeing people all the time every weekend to do your sports and then you're creating a whole new social group. So the social aspect, I love working out with other people, uh, pushing each other hard. Um, and um, for me, the biggest factor, and you know, no more excuses for anybody. I always mention my my 80-something-year-old mother-in-law who j never worked out her life started at age 81 doing air squats, and now she's time. holding weights. But for me, 
getting a good coach, someone who I could trust, um, was all the difference in the world. And I have to say, um, you know, someone else found this first board. Here's it's JDI Barbell. Here's the uh, advertiser by yeah, Jim. Yeah, let's go. Um, <laughs> so JDI Barbell, I consider it one of those destination gyms. There's uh, one location in Harlem, New York, and one in Tribeca, New York, you know, backyard of Robert De Niro. And um, I found somebody there who could be a good coach. They have a lot of good coaches. If I make it to Colorado, I'll, you know, Max, I'll come visit you. But I think having a program uh, that you can rely on, because I was in gyms my whole life since I was a skinny cross-country runner. I remember in high school and you had like 175-pound club, 200-pound club, 225 for bench press, right? 250-pound yeah. club. And here I am just screwing around basically. And then, you know, through my 20s and 30s, I'd go to the gym every now and then. I think I'll do three sets of 10 on this and three sets of eight on that without a plan. So having an actual plan is night and day. And I know you can get a lot of plans online. And, um, you know, I know people have done that successfully. Uh, if I had more time, maybe I would do that. And you don't have, it doesn't cost you anything. You just have to know how to do your research. For me, especially being older and wanting to get the technique correct, that's everything, as you know, doing squat and deadlift and, and bench. And I made my mistakes. I made some really stupid mistakes, like simply reaching over to grab a 25 pound dumbbell without bracing one day. And like I, I pulled a muscle on my shoulder. It's like, just don't do stupid stuff. Or yeah. I wasn't feeling well one day and I was pushing a bent press and, you know, I flared a little bit. My shoulder hurt there. But I will say right now, uh, you know, less than three years after my first competition, the pain in my shoulder is gone. The pain in my hips gone. The pain in my elbow is gone. Now I have gone to the person, physical therapist a couple of times when I tweaked this or that. And so I, I go crazy with the preparation and stretching before I start because I can't stand getting injured. You know, that sets you back, what, like three, six months, especially as you get older. Um, so it's been quite an experience, and but it's self-perpetuating because as you see, I just got a, a PR in the gym uh, the past weekend and I'm like, Congrats. wow, this is, this is really, well, gym PR, you have to do it at a meet for it to count. Yeah, that's, that's fair. But <laughs> the, this is the call new to me, by the way. Um, and so I'm like this little kid. I'm all like excited. Hey, look at my shiny metal. Hey, I'm getting PRs. But that is self-perpetuating and that's, and I feel better. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm going to stay on this course and, you know, just keep going. So, yeah. Quit just to kind of read. So you you got diagnosed with osteoporosis. You're like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to start lifting weights. And you found JDI Barbell, and that's kind of the inception of, and a great coach. And that was kind of the inception of the the path to pursue powerlifting. Yeah, ab absolutely. And uh, again, having been around gyms my whole life, but never actually immersing myself in a, in the correct way. And I know yeah. your five pillars are like, you know, it's not only strength, recovery. By the way, when I used to be an endurance athlete, I never took a day off ever. That's crazy. And, I, and, I, and I'm proud of myself. I never take a day off. I remember talking like serious life events, births, deaths, cold, flu. Like I thought of myself as the Cal Ripken. You know what that was? Stupid. <laughs> as you guys talk about, I mean, recovery is part of it. And then there's the whole nutrition aspect. Um, you know, I would just have... Look, go out and enjoy yourself and your peer group. It's like you have fun. And I used to go out and drink late and everything else. But now I'm at the point where it's like, 
first of all, I've been through that phase, but otherwise I never feel better than I do after like the rush I have after a great workout. So I, I don't care about, you know, for a while there, I drink some wine or some beer or whatever. I can't, I don't feel better by drinking alcohol than I do after a good workout. So I'm, I'm fine with that. I embrace it. My friends give me a hard time. Oh, come on, have one drink. But now I'm at the point, I really won't because the thrill you have after like getting a PR this past week, nothing's going to match that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and you talk about like kind of your transition here, getting a good coach, but I think you're so humble with that as well. Like, obviously there's a lot that goes into this on your end and you're, you're a high performer in a lot of places in your life. And I don't think that that is something that you shut off in, in powerlifting as well. And so how has this changed with you being super busy, but your um, travel, you're traveling a lot, you're getting your training in your recovery. Like, what are you doing differently? Um, you know, your nutrition, how has that all changed the last couple of years as you've gotten a lot more serious into powerlifting? I know we shared, um, you shared a website earlier with kind of, you know, even finding the right uh, place to travel with the hotel that has a squat rack so you can get your your reps in while you're traveling. How has all that changed the last couple of years? Oh, actually, let me see if I have this here. So I, I love taking a little bottle. Um, let's see, here's my creatine bottle. And let's I fill go. it up with white, white powder. <laughs> so I, I, I see this was, and I take it through the airport. I don't like checking bags. So I'm going through airport security with my... <laughs> little bottle filled with some white substance uh, that, that's by creatine um so that's certainly uh, i was very nervous the first few times i did that i don't want to be pulled over for whatever i'm carrying there but that's creatine uh and then protein powder um i do have whey protein shakes twice a day and i i doubled down on the protein and um so that that's a change that, that's helped me um it, by the way, you say I'm humble. I'm nothing compared. Like once you go and meet these people, like for me, I meet people in their seventies who are putting up so much more weight than I am or people my age who are just crushing it. And they, they eat food as they say, just eat food, uh, eat your protein, eat your lean protein, get your vegetables, hydrate a lot, uh, just basic stuff. There's nothing complicated to this, but I had to learn the basics. I had to go back to school on how to eat. And uh, I also stopped the stupid eating. Like if you're going out and you're partying with your friends or it's a birthday or it's the weekend, or if you're actually tasting your food, anything goes. But the mindless eating during a work day where you're just grabbing stuff and not thinking about it, like enough of that. And I did go a little psycho uh, before nationals mm -hmm. because I, my goal was to bring a thousand. I finally got that. I wanted to go to nationals. Never thought I could get a medal. Okay, fine. There's not that many people when you get to master's three, but hey, I wanted my, my shiny medal. My wife said, oh, you're like, a, you know, like a 10 year old boy. Fine. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll own that. Um, but I didn't eat dessert for four months. So I went, I think I'm just now just going to settle into whatever weight class I settle into. It's different when you get older. I know you guys in wrestling, uh, you go to extremes. I beat people at nationals. Like, wow. I think they can match you guys for how much weight they lose and how quickly they oh, lose yeah. it to, to get that lower weight class. So I think I'm just going to settle in wherever I am, not to miss. The, the plot for me is simply to be healthy, to be mobile, uh, to, for me, having stronger bones and to be healthy. Um, and so, but I did change my diet up. I, and also when I travel, working at Wall Street, you're traveling all the time. I do have a website, gyms with squat racks. So I would rather stay in the diviest hotel if they have a squat rack or if they're next to, you know, a good gym yeah. than the fanciest Four Seasons are at. 
I love that. That's the way so, to do it. Do, do you have anything else? Like obviously diet's huge. Um, recovery, recovery wise that you're doing, because I think that like most athletes are under recovering in terms of like their output is so high and they're just pushing everything. Like you're talking about, you know, you never take a day off. So how is, how has that changed? You know, as you've gotten, uh, older and, and more wise with your training, what do you, what do you do differently in terms of like off days, sleep, anything like that, that you're doing different? Well, look, first the idea, recovery is huge. And I just never appreciated that until just a few years ago, literally. So lived most of my life. And uh, so if I have a hard day, I need to recover the next day because that's when my muscles grow as I've learned and you guys talk about. So I have four days uh, when I work out and I try, if I'm working one part of my body hard, I'm going to try not to work that hard two days in a row. And I try to get more sleep. That's it's easier said than done, but I try to expose myself to the sunlight early and stop screen time a little earlier at night so I can sleep. And um, so that certainly has changed. And, um, you know, I think uh, walking. Uh, so on the rest days, active recovery to some degree. So that's living in New York City is great because I walk to work now. So that's like a three mile. I walked my three miles down Park Avenue today through Grand. There's a special uh, like tunnel, like when you get to Grand Central Station, which I never knew even knew existed. I think Franklin Roosevelt used to use that to get around Midtown way back when. But if I can walk by three miles to work and then I walk in the park and I walk with family and we'll just drive outside New York City and there's some great parks. And um, so that's new. I discovered Eureka walking, but, you know, walking and powerlifting. And then I'll still do some cardio on the side. Like that's my side dish. Yeah. And I try to keep that up. Yeah, what's, I think, um, and I, I, you know, through competing in powerlifting myself, I've learned same, you know, when you're trying to move as much weight as possible for low reps, it's very obvious when you're not recovered. Whereas when you're wrestling or doing an endurance sport, not that I've really ever done serious endurance sports, but we'll, we'll count wrestling. Um, it's like you got, there's more of like a mental aspect, you know, you can tough things out. You can figure out in wrestling different ways to win. Whereas in powerlifting, like if you're not recovered and you're not strong, you're just not going to move the weight. It doesn't matter how tough you are. So I do think powerlifting teaches some interesting lessons in recovery. It, may, it puts it right at the forefront. That's for sure. I could tell, hey, I didn't sleep well the night before or I screwed up on my meals. Like you feel it when you're powerlifting. Absolutely. And I tell my coach the two best days in my last three years with him, when he, or when he literally sent me home. Like I did my, my first set. He says, I don't think you're fit to lift today. And he did that twice. And I said, those are the two most valuable days I've ever had. Uh, the other lesson that I learned though, I mean, you can always get a PR or any given day. I feel good. I'm going to go to the gym and get a PR. But you have to, in, a, in these meets, you have to lift strong at that day, at that time, after XYZ person and bring it home. And so the lesson I learned at national, truthfully, I didn't do as well in national as I thought I would. You never, I guess, you know, because even if you go nine for nine, you go, oh, maybe I should have gone more, but it's not how well you do relative to your expectations. It's how well you did relative to what you brought to the table that day. And at least right. I remind myself that. And so on that basis, I did as well as I could have done at nationals. And some of that, I didn't eat enough uh, carbs. Uh, that week of nationals, I was still in that cut mode, which was stupid. So this is all a learning process for me. I mean, you know, cutting and 
trying to retain muscle is different than making sure you have enough energy for game day. Right. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting aspect of powerlifting because it's like a, it's a number, right? Like your performance is literally a number. So it's so easy to correlate what you're doing with your performance, um, which is what, one of the reasons I really enjoy the sport. Absolutely. I guess, you know, being a, a Wall Street person, a math person, I just love how the numbers, it's your, it's your best of, you know, your best squad, your best bench, your best deadlift, add it up and that's your number. Yep. Add it. That's it. <laughs> Done. But it's, it's funny too, you touch on like, there's a, there's a luck aspect as well. Not, not luck overall, but like you're saying, like there's this set date, circle it on the calendar. That's the day that you got to perform your best. Whether you tweak something a week before in training, whether you had a bad weight cut that week, whether, you know, whatever, you had a bad night of sleep. Um, and I think all sports, there's such a, you know, there's a lot of hard work that leads up to it. And then, you know, it's any given day, whether you perform well or not too, which is, you know, you're trying to make your worst day be still a good day. Um, but it takes a lot to figure out, you know, kind of how your body's performing at those days and throwing those thoughts out of your mind when you're like, I don't feel my best, but you still have you know, 300 pounds of, on the bar and you're like, I gotta, I gotta move this weight. Um, one, one other thing that you touched a little bit about that I thought was really interesting is kind of your work-life balance, right? You have, you have three kids, you have a wife, you have a, obviously a very high demanding job, and then you're doing a very high demanding sport. How do you think about balance in your life and performing at all these different things? Do you, do you have, do you section out your day or how do you go about doing all these things at once? I go back again. The greatest thing that I learned was having a program. I know four days a week, exactly which sets, how many reps, how much weight or what RPE number I need to do. So I know what I'm going to be doing. And I try to work that into my schedule. If I'm traveling, I find gyms ahead of time. Um, I love going to Gold Gym, by the way, in LA. I thought it'd be kind of cliche, but they had that outside. They have that outside area with the squat rack, and that, that was fun. Uh, I was down in South Beach a couple of weeks ago with my buddies playing beach volleyball, but they have their own version of Muscle Beach uh, down in South Beach, Florida. And um, so I try to certainly work that in to my schedule. Um, sometimes I'll go you know, before work. Sometimes I'll go for my, my lunch break. I don't always go late. I, tried, I belong to a couple different gyms. Um, you know, there's one, my main one again, a JDI barbell. That's the one I, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I credit without them. I probably would never have competed. And by the way, this is finding a community certainly makes a difference because that makes the motivation that that much stronger. And like this right. gym, they have, you know, your, your regular meatheads who we love for just putting up the weight and you have some people who compete in worlds. And last weekend, there were literally five PhDs in the gym at the same time. Wow. And this is a barbell gym in Harlem. So it's, it's a crazy community. It's a niche community. It's a niche sport, I think, um, yeah. that I just absolutely love. But I find a way, you know, it, it, you find a way to make sure you put it in there. And frankly, compared to the endurance sports, like when I was cycling, I mean, cycling, you know, 60 miles, 70 miles, and in New York City, you'd go up to New Jersey and you go up to New York and there's all these tons of people. You go over the George Washington bridge. Yeah. You're talking three, four hours sometimes, especially on the weekend where it's actually powerlifting. It's in comparison or in comparison to playing golf. When I used to play golf, that'd be like four or five hours. Um, so compared to these other sports that I've done in my life, it's actually incredibly efficient. 
Uh, and by the way, for anyone who's older and who's, you know, needy for little shiny metals, by the way, everything from here on is gravy for me. Like I, I got to Nationals, I got my shiny metal, I broke a thousand. I do hope to trend. I, I want to keep getting stronger. I'm getting gym PR. So, and not give her. And so it, it's all gravy from here. But if anyone's in the master's category, you want to get that shiny little gold star or whatever. Um, compared to other sports, you can do it a lot more in powerlifting than cycling or triathlon. If you're a triathlete or even mountain biking, these are all tough sports to distinguish yourself. So come yeah. on out, bring on, the, bring on the competition. If you're, you know, 40 or older, you're, you're masters. Uh, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the key for you is, is, um, you know, managing the work-life balance is just planning. You plan it out and you figure out how to get it done. Absolutely. Without a plan, it wouldn't get done. And it starts with that, like on my phone, I just have my program for a month and it gets dropped down each month. And there's different services you can find online or find someone you trust or go to Colorado and go to your gym, Max. Yes. <laughs> so do you, with work, like, do you block your, your count? Like, okay, so today I'm going to go in the morning, I'm going to lift and I'm working my normal work hours. Like take us through what a day looks like for you. Well, I know I, right now I've been doing my, some two hard days in a row, Saturday and Sunday. So I just have to worry about two other days during the week. And then I just know I have to get it in. You know, let's say this week it's Tuesday and Thursday. If there's breaking news or something I have to work on, there's, you know, as a Wall Street analyst, then I'm going to have, that's going to have to take priority. But then I might try to go that night. I'm going to get it in. I will get it in as long as I'm not too stressed out. I mean, you only have, you know, CNS fatigue, as I have learned, is a, is a real thing. Very real. And, yeah. and if I'm stressed out from work and then I'm going to the gym, you know, your tank might be empty. So I'm trying to be more cognizant of that and trying not to do the stupid stuff. We all do stupid stuff. Everyone who's an athlete does stupid stuff. So I'm trying to re reduce that. And that's one reason I broke the 10 bones. I downhill mountain bike with osteoporosis going over a drop. Oh. On a ski mountain, it's just stupid. And um, and it wasn't a big drop. So if I have CNS fatigue, like, okay, maybe I'll skip that. Or maybe I'll skip my accessories. I, I you know, I cheated, but you know, I didn't do all my accessories on Saturday because I went super heavy. And I've learned to stick to that. But otherwise, I'll fit it in during the day somewhere. I but love planning that is the key. I love that too, because it seems... I don't know. Now that you say it, it seems super obvious, but like, I haven't even thought about it that way ever. And I don't think it's super obvious to people. It's like your weekends, most people just take the weekends off. And it's like, if you have a lot more time on your weekends to, to get in these dedicated hours to something that's important to you, maybe that's the best time to schedule two of your days. And now you only have to figure out two days during the week when, you know, you're busy with work and, and stuff going on. And, um, you know, obviously there's travel and weekend stuff and, and work that comes up, but typically like a weekend, I think, if you if you're struggling to find time for something, a weekend is a great great time to plug in some extra like dedicated hours to something like this. And it seems like you do a great job managing that. And ha has that always been your your thought process, or did you learn this like very early on in your career, just like how to become a better better at blocking out your times with with everything going crazy around you? Well, as it relates to powerlifting, this is all new in the last three or four years. So I'm like an an old athlete who's learning new things, and it's all excited, but um, like I can't have a heavy deadlift day on Saturday and then a, uh, you know, a heavy squat day the day after or something like that. So right. that is planning not only which days, 
by which order. And by the way, if I'm going really heavy and I'm, I still get nervous from going heavy and I don't really know how to fail that well. So I want to make sure there's people in the gym who can spot me, either my coach or other people around. Um, so that is new, this idea. And as long as you plan, you definitely can do it. Um, but otherwise I'm just, uh, a maniac, uh, athlete who would always work out in the mornings running or cycling. And I, I, that, I changed that. I completely pivoted from that, uh, to the strength training, powerlifting, you know, the last four or five years. Yeah, that's awesome. I think one other thing, when I look at your, you know, your career path and your life, you just, you, you have the courage to try new things constantly. And I think you lean into the hard stuff and I think that uncertainty is where a lot of people kind of shut down and, and have a hard time making that like leap of faith. So how do you think about, you know, new challenges? You know, you're, you're very successful. Um, you could do whatever you want at this point in your life. And you learn, you lean into this new powerlifting. That's super tough. You lean into all these extra things throughout your whole life. Um, how do, how do you think about new things or why is that just, does that come naturally to you? Are you just always been looking for the new challenge or is that something you've had to work at? I, I don't think of myself as, I, I have done some courageous things. I don't think of myself as courageous because I'm and so scared uh, before doing certain things. So even uh, before I go on CNBC or Bloomberg or I, and I'm on a lot, I've been going on there for 25 years now. I still think about what, everything that can go wrong. So I know I'm always one word, one stupid statement away from ending my career. So I just prepare like crazy. Um, so I never take anything for granted like that. I don't take anything for granted with my workout schemes. But as it relates to this, I will say it's, um, you know, I impo imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing here at my first meet? You know, here we are uh, two and a half years, uh, whatever, that was, two years and a couple months ago in Long Island, the winter meet. You can pull it up on all open powerlifting, as you know. Um, and I felt so far out of my comfort zone. I scared silly. And I told, like I said, I sold over a hundred people. I'm in this room. I didn't know what to eat between. Someone said eat Skittles. So I was eating Skittles, but I couldn't chew it. <laughs> so I took it out of my mouth and hit it into my friend in his hand. And, uh, you know, I'm not, and, and I'm thinking of like Thor, or like sometimes they, you watch videos, what are they thinking about to get all the energy they can in the world? Or I bought a caffeine drink that went up being like five times more caffeinated than I thought. Like everything could possibly do wrong, completely out of my comfort zone. And then I get disqualified for missing my first three squat attempts just because I basically freaked out. Um, that was so much harder than going on TV or anything like that. You're doing something completely new. But then my next meet, not as far out of my comfort zone. And then by the time I got to Nationals, I did Northeast Regionals. It's like, okay, I'm getting used to this. The bright lights, it's, it's live streamed and everything else. And then by the time I got to Nationals, I was like, you know, I think I'm having fun. I, was, I, I got to that point where a little bit of a flow state. Um, yeah, I missed a couple lists, then got them on the third time on the, on the bench and deadlift. And, and now I'm going into the, the next one. I feel like, okay, I think this is my... I think I'm in the zone more and not as scared. So it's, it's like anything. The first time you do it, you freak out, which I did. And then you get into it. Um, but it's, it's a great feeling to have made this progression. Yeah, that, that's super impressive. I mean, I think in some ways you said you're not courageous, but if you're scared to do something and then you still do it anyway, I think that's pretty much the definition of courage. <laughs> so that's awesome. And something you said that's actually really impressive. Um, 
if you if you compete in powerlifting, missing a lift and then getting it on your third attempt is that's really hard to do because you're you're blowing your your central nervous system. You're basically taking the same weight, um, like at a disadvantage, and then you're still getting it. So kudos to you for doing that. That means you you know you got some real grit. Well, I'm not, you know, you can watch the videos. I, I think I said uh, to you guys when I first met you talking to you that, you know, if you want to show my videos of where I failed, I embrace those now. And I, it, I wouldn't have said that two years ago, but now I'm at the point where it's like, yeah, failure is part of the process. You have to learn to live with failure. And frankly, my job as a Wall Street analyst, you know, if I'm wrong 45% of the time, I'm doing a great job. That's the way the numbers work on Wall Street or investing, right? And so you have to learn to live with failing and learning and growing from that. And I'm, it still hurts. I can't stand failing and it still hurts a lot. Um, but I do feel like definitely with powerlifting, I'm growing from it. So, you know, progress, not perfection. I read on some powerlifting website, but that that's stayed with me. Yeah. yeah it, it seems like you like throughout your whole like career and just what you've been talking about recently. You've done a great job of maybe it doesn't get easier. It's still like it's scary, but you lean into it and you've changed your mindset with failure where it's like it's necessary and it's part of the process. So instead of being afraid of it, you lean into it and you just know like I'm going to fail at some stuff and that's how I get better at it. Um, so I think that's that's awesome to hear because it seems like, you know, some people it seems like from the outside you look at you and it's like, wow, you've you've done awesome. You've done amazing things. You're probably not scared of anything. Um, but it also seems like the other thing that you do to manage that is you do your homework, you over-prepare, you're doing all the right stuff. And I think that that gives you confidence, even though, yeah, maybe you're nervous day of a meet, day of, you know, going on, on Bloomberg, on CNBC, but it's like you prepared for that. And so then that gives you the, you, you know, enough confidence to go on there and actually perform even when you're, when you're nervous, but perform at a high level, even after, you know, being scared about this, this uh, event coming up. Yeah, when I, you know, address somebody, they say, well, you, you're just naturally confident. And I tell them, no, I'm scared crazy <laughs> about messing up. I'm, I'm not a confident person. And to compensate for that, I over-prepare. And by the time I prepare for Wall Street or something like that, I've done so much preparation that I'm going to be the most confident person out there. At least that's by attitude. And at least for this powerlifting, I'm so scared of messing up that I'm going to, you know, stretch and practice and, you know, try to perfect that technique as much as possible. And I'm not anywhere close to where I am with my job. I mean, he's saying elite athlete. I'm not an elite athlete. I'm, I've, I'm, I'm somebody who's progressed. I broke the thousand pound club, master's three. I'm happy. I've done that in two years. I'm psyched and I'm going to get better. And I would like to become more elite, get my dots number up and all that sort of thing. Um, but I think, it does give you more confidence. It does give me more confidence if I prepare and practice and perfect that technique that I am going to perform better. And I, I do feel more confident now. I'm getting up there to that level. But thank you for the, uh, you know, calling me elite. I think that might be the first time, uh, you know, anyone's called me that. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure I've heard it yet. I, I don't know. I, I love that. I think that that's like uh, elite is such a, I mean, it's subjective, right? But I think that you're, from an outsider's perspective, I would consider you an elite athlete. I don't think there's many people doing what you're doing at your stage with the amount of like, I mean, you've been doing this a couple of years. That's, that's awesome. I love it. 
Yeah. Well, it's, I, I think of, I think of lifting at this, like, you know, master's two or master's three, and I hope to be a master's four, you know, down the road here. Um, I think of this as simply, you know, a, a, a competition of attrition and can you still stay in the game? It's like one of those, you know, 150 mile, you know, cycling tracks where only, you know, nine people finish or one of those real endurance, uh, feats. So maybe that's the category I can be in. But frankly, if people crossed over all my, all my cycling buddies, especially the non-weight bearing exercise of cycling is not, doesn't help your bones. And you have to start thinking about your muscle and your mobility as you get older. So I'd like to see more people cross over and I'm always trying to recruit people to, uh, compete and do one meet, just do one meet. It's like such a thrill. I mean, people want to run the New York city marathon one time to do it, or they want to climb Mount Everest one time, or they want to ride a century, hundred mile bike ride one time. Like this is just do one powerlifting meet, And it's a thrill. It's up there with any of those. I haven't climbed Mount Everest, but for me, it was the equivalent. Like, could I actually get there? And it was climbing my personal mountain. Yeah. I think, um, one thing I, I really like that you said is, is about the preparation and practice that goes into it. And Ryan and I talk about it all the time under kind of the, the mindset pillar, but it's just being process oriented. And if you, you go through the process and you really leave no stone unturned, like you're doing, you're traveling with your bottle of creatine on the airplane and you know, you're, you're figuring out how to structure your work weeks to get the best training you can. And once you get to the competition, you know, you kind of, you're able to relax a little bit. You, you, at least in your mind, you know, it's still scary as heck. And I can, I can also attest, I would, my first powerlifting meet, I've, I've wrestled in front of 20,000 people. I was like, this isn't going to be nerve wracking. I got on the platform and I like, I blacked out. <laughs> it is a lot of adrenaline all at once. Um, but if you do leave all, you, you really bought into the process, you prepare, you practice. When you get there, then you know, hey, what happens, happens. I, uh, you know, I left it all on the line. So I, I love that. And, and I love that you take that into your work as well and, and what you do on Wall Street and being an analyst. And, you know, maybe we can tie that into how um, we've talked a lot about your powerlifting. I think we can kind of tie this into powerlifting, but you've had an amazing career. How did you find something that you love doing? How is your, if you had to give advice to a young person, you know, someone from our peer group, as you say, on, on having a fulfilling career and finding something that they love doing, whether it's in their hobby or their professional career. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'd say, um, I fell into this. Um, but my, my passion was really trying to make a difference and, you know, follow your passion more than like the end goal. And I did a zigzag. So I, um, worked at you know, big corporation, IBM that paid for my MBA. So they paid for that. I paid most of my way through undergrad at university of Maryland. And, um, then I graduated, did really well at, uh, I went to university of Maryland, George Washington for my MBA and graduated after a big stock market crash. And so I took a job with the government and my parents had a small business restaurant outside of Washington, DC. No one would ever work in the government. Um, so it was the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C., took a pay cut with my MBA. And so I did a little zigzag. Uh, but I thought by doing that, I'd get on a course that longer term would be beneficial. And so I would say follow your passion more than just the money. I know when you graduate 
And it's like, how much does someone make? And everyone's comparing notes those first few years. And, uh, you know, I see it around me. And, um, you know, going to that job where you'll get the experience, but not the money in the short term. And for people who understand finance, take the net present value of your future income streams. It'll still work out if you want to, you know, follow the, the money. Um, but I think following your passion is the most important thing. And then, you know, independent thought in any business. I mean, so many people work for corporations or small business, and it's just one big echo chamber. I mean, our society is one big echo chamber. And to find an independent thought is so rare. Um, so just trust your own judgment. You know, risk being wrong. Same thing as in powerlifting or in wrestling. Risk taking that chance, risk failing. And if you do that, then you're more likely to stand out in whatever you do. Because so many aspects of society, it's just groupthink and everyone's agreeing, especially in Wall Street. You know, you think Wall Street, I always thought, well, everyone's just so smart. They work so hard. And they, they are smarter than average. They do work harder than the average. But the independent thinking, I still feel is lacking a lot of times. They just repeat what someone else said. So uh, my uh, advice is to you know, follow your passion. Don't necessarily go for whatever pays the most. Go for that job that will give you the, the skills. And keep that independent thinking. Trust your judgment. I I love that because I think so many people um, that I know, even the last couple of years, they like they go into investment banking or something. They do it for like three or four years, hate it, and then they go through this huge like crisis of figuring something else out. And I think that they went in with like just a money focused mindset instead of a fulfillment mindset. Um, and I think in some in some respect, like people like what they're good at too. Um, but also like just coming out of college, you're probably not going to be great at everything you're doing just right away. Um, but when you talk about like, not the group think and being able to kind of be an independent thinker, how do you do that when it's like, like you're saying an echo chamber on, on wall street, where there's so many people that you talk to that are thinking and talking the same way. How do you keep an independent mind outside of that without, you know, buying into what you hear every day? Because when it's all around you, it's hard to like, get a different perspective on something. Well, whether it's powerlifting or whether it's doing research on Wall Street, it's just about doing your homework and convincing yourself. So like I said, I'm very nervous. I'm not naturally competent. So I have to do so much research to convince myself. So I'm my own toughest critic. So once I've actually convinced myself, then I'm going to be confident in talking to my hundreds of people that I, that I talk to, to try to convince them about it a certain route. Awesome. So did you, did you have any like mentors that taught you through some of this stuff growing up while, while you were early on in your career? Or was this something that you just kind of naturally found as you progressed throughout your, your career? Well, I wouldn't say naturally found. Um, it, it was the, frankly, I took the default, it was a default job working for the government. It is the federal reserve, which gave me my, my pedigree and Again, you don't make much money necessarily working for the government. And I, it was fine. I mean, I just had three roommates, went to the beach, you know, I had enough to get a six pack, you know, it was fine. <laughs> um, it, it was fine and easy. And I had a, you know, a, a bed that was on the floor and it was called area called Adam Morgan in Washington, DC. And it was, it was, it was fine. But uh, I finally just, it was just through just toughing it out and no one gave me a roadmap. And then I saw this magazine called Institutional Investor, and it had this list of all-star Wall Street analysts. I mean, I've heard of all-star baseball players and all-star football players, but I'd never heard of all-star Wall Street analysts. I go, hey, that's, I want to be an all-star, you know? I want, 
you know, uh, that shiny metal, that gold star, whatever you want to call it. And I called the top 10 people and said, hey, I want a job. And I just, and I would call them after 5 p.m. when I knew their assistance would be gone and maybe they'd pick up the phone directly. And then I'd fly up from Washington, D.C. to New York and interview. And I kept interviewing. And it's a numbers game. Eventually, I got a job as an assistant, as a, a real grunt. And again, you have back to the advice. Just get in there. Get your foot in the door. You know, suck it up, okay? No one likes, I don't know anyone who's liked their first job, by the way. You know, so you suck it up. You take that first job, which is what I did. Um, and then I got the experience. And I leveraged that experience. And once I had my foot in the door, though, I really... I capitalized on that as much as possible. I worked harder than anybody. So that's such a cool full circle moment. You talk about like looking at Institutional Investor Magazine, and then now you're like this all-star analyst on that magazine that, you know, motivated you when you were younger. What, uh, when that was like the pedestal for you at a, at a time, maybe, did that like, once you reached that, did that change your mind? Like, did your mindset shift or was it kind of like, a letdown or um like the way i think about this is like a lot of people talk about like winning a gold gold uh medal at the olympics and once they reach that that goal it's like almost like a depressive state after because that's what they were striving for the whole time or was there like you know obviously you sat there and held there and continue to improve so what what drives you what what continues to drive you past that once you got there and was there like a certain degree of like Okay, I did it. Now what? Once you reach that that highest pedigree. So I I don't do I need to send you money for a therapy session here right now? Yeah. Because <laughs> um yeah, that was it was like it was like nineteen ninety-eight or late nineties. I finally made it number one, that you know, esteemed position that I aspired to get. And I did feel a little depressed. Yeah. I was like, wow, I, I played the it was kind of playing the game. And I I made some really good research calls and it was the era of all sorts of mergers on Wall Street. And uh, so I, I did well, I got reports, but I was like, here I am number one, I played a game and it, it felt a little empty is the truth. Um, and so that led me to go ahead and um, make my my big call. And that's when I went ahead and put sell ratings on uh, the largest banks in I, I, 1999. Uh, it was by, no one used sell ratings back then. And I went ahead and made a really big call and said, I don't, I wanted to make some, a call or that made my, would make myself feel proud. Um, and that was, that took courage. Actually, the day I was going to do it, I chickened out. And so I delayed by, I delayed by a week. And then I went ahead and made this call, sell these big banks and all this. And um, that, at the end of that day, I was like, wow, I'm still alive. I made it. I worked so hard to get to that point. You know, I had my three years of getting my MBA while working at IBM, my five years at the Federal Reserve, and then seven years on Wall Street. And I finally got to number one. And I go ahead and make this call just to kind of, you know, perfect my craft, so to speak. So that was, that was hard. And since then, you know, someone once told me that, you know, if you do what you think is good, the reward will be the potential to do more good. And you know, I think pe people question how much Wall Street does good or not. And we can have a 10 hour debate or 20 or, you know, the rest yeah. of our life debate. Um, but I do try to simply call it the way I see it. Um, you know, my wife, not impressed by this. She's a doctor. Her job is to say healthy or sick. She says your job is to buy, say buy or sell. You shouldn't get extra <laughs> credit for just doing what's your job. And I truly, truly believe I just do my job. 
and not everybody necessarily does their job uh, the way they should. And I get a kick out of that. I get a kick out of like, and I don't, this is crazy. Like I'm just doing my job by talking about things that everybody sees and no one's talking about. So it's, you know, somebody asked to do it. And by the way, you know, they, they pay you for doing that too. So this is, um, you know, my hero was this guy, Paul Volcker, one of the greatest central bankers uh, in our history. I luckily got to know him at the end of his life. And here's a guy who lived frugally his entire life, took the bus to work in his 80s. Um, he was at the Federal Reserve taking tough actions around 1980, put the whole country in a recession. But then the next 40 years, the country was better off for it. So what a, what a role model, what a special person. And so if I can just be, you know, one sliver of what he was, you know, that's what I wanted to be. So that keeps me going. That is awesome. I, I love that. And I think that's kind of the next thing I want to talk to you about quickly. Like we, we talked about um, kind of like ethics there a little bit. And in 2013, you were the sole recipient of the FCA Institute Annual Award for Ethics and Standards of Practice. Um, so I think Wall Street maybe gets a bad rep for like money at all costs. And like you're saying, like good or bad is kind of up for debate on who you ask. But having a high ethical standard, I think is so important. And the fact that you have shown that throughout your career and done that, um, I think is amazing. But also, I'm sure there was hard at times to, you know, like you're seeing other people around you or, or other stuff going on. Um, have you always been just like, have you thought about that throughout your career? Or is that just that was so ingrained in you from from a since you were a kid that that's just that was just your normal the whole time um when when tough decisions were in front of you uh no i can't say that's natural i just there's something that triggers me when i see something unfair and yes i did look around me during my career especially the early days like these guys are cutting quarters these guys are incented by the wrong things uh these, these are back in the in the 1990s you could go ahead and rate reviews on companies and why you got kickback, basically kickbacks from those companies. So it's like a restaurant reviewer getting paid by the restaurants they're reviewing. Um, that's the way it used to work. Luckily that part has changed. And so, uh, I just am doing my job. It's the, in fact, when I made my big call, this is the way I was taught in business school. This is the way I was taught by CFA. And that's the main accreditation for financial analysts. Like they get CPA to accounting is CFA to finance. And and I am proud of that award. Not everyone cares as much, but uh, I'm the only person in my job to have gotten that a standard of conduct award. They give it out to one person globally each year. And so I was very excited by that more than some other people around me at the time, but that's what I was playing for. And so that, you know, I, I like to try to hold up those standards of what, how should a financial analyst on Wall Street act? And I, I have a lot of, um, you know, I, I have a certain degree of uh, clout after all these years, but along with that comes a lot of responsibility. I think that responsibility means really evaluating all angles, being balanced with the research, um, and then making sure your conclusions are, are supported. Yeah. Well, I think part of what's so cool with you is that your standard of ethics are part of what makes you such a good analyst. You know, like you, you are one of the six or seven analysts who predicted the, the great financial crisis and 0708, you know, and 
I think, um, I guess I'll phrase it as a question. Do you think the fact that you would really try and just look at the research, not have a biased opinion and look at the market super objectively and through a lens of total sobriety is kind of one, what makes you so good at your job and two, you know, that, that deep moral character that you have, um, kind of is, makes you a better analyst. Well, again, a deep moral character is pretty strong. I mean, I, <laughs> the people, you know, um, I would say just objective and we'll leave it at that. Um, I'm not going to make it out for any more than it is. I just think it, instead it's drive behavior and money drives behavior and the money, especially the early part of my career, uh, was incentivized you to say great things about the companies that you're supposed to be writing research reports about. So I think that, um, you know, was an opportunity for me in a way you could call me an opportunist by being independent, by being objective, maybe I could stand out and have longevity in the job. And sure enough, that's the way it played out. And the world's changed some, not as much as, you know, it, it can. Um, and you know, I like being a truth teller and I like being a sustainable truth teller. See, you can't just, I don't wake up in the morning wanting to pick a fight with a bank CEO. I, I never, I don't do it for that purpose. I don't do it for, to be provocative, but the outcome better be provocative in such a subjective world, such as deciding which company is doing well, which are doing poorly. If you're not being provocative with the outcome, then you're probably not being objective enough. I love it. I um, also, I'll just point out that someone with great moral character would be humble about their moral character. <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you, no, the people, look, people who worked at the Federal Reserve that I worked with, and this goes back, this was the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, there were some great people that I worked with there. And uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm a pittance compared to those people. To compare to someone like Paul Volcker, right? And Chairman Volcker, such a great person, like my personal hero. Someone like, you meet people like that, and like, those are, those are great people. I think that's awesome too. Cause I, I, it's just being able to like sleep at night and being able to like be okay with who you are is, is so important in my book. And I think the fact that that like us telling you that that's the way you are and you being uncomfortable with that just goes to show that you're even more that way. Um, so that's awesome. And I think that's the, the funny thing too, is like, that's maybe the hard thing to do. Like you're saying, like there's maybe incentives to not be that way. But the, it's also a double-edged sword where it makes people trust you and makes you good at your job because it's like, this guy can't be bought. This guy is going to tell you objectively the truth and he's going to do his job to the best of his ability. Um, and I think, again, common theme in your life, like it takes courage to do that, to stand out and be different from everybody else and have a different, you know, ethical and moral standard. Um, so I think that's awesome. I absolutely love that. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's taken me a lifetime to be comfortable completely being myself. So I think if I did this podcast, you know, 30 years ago, you know, when I first applied to Wall Street, which was not until my late twenties, it was a long road for me to get there. And, you know, my first interview was like, oh, you went to University of Maryland. They have a lot, they do a lot of partying there. And I go, oh, I studied real hard. No, of course I partied a lot. I didn't know how to just be my, be myself. And it, a nice feeling just to be able to be myself. And I find when I meet people who are younger, and they're just completely themselves and genuine and authentic. I really appreciate that as opposed to my young self that was so stiff. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's a very admirable trait and it's not easy to be just completely yourself and authentic. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, so to kind of bring it back full circle, you have been uh, competing in powerlifting on a high level. You have been a high level Wall Street analyst. You just do everything in your life on a high level. So I don't know if there's any kind of parting thoughts you want to leave us with or anything that you want to say to our listeners about just living life on a high level. Well, with my, my work, um, you know, I have worked hard and I always thought people were smarter and worked harder than I did. And, you know, I think it might be cliche, but it's still true. You know, don't overestimate other people and don't underestimate yourself uh, when it comes to your professional challenges. And when it comes to powerlifting, you know, I am still a newbie. I'm still learning how everything works. But if I can do this at, you know, master's three level after a few years and be, be so much stronger and set PRs and gain muscle mass and have greater agility than I did for all those 40 years of doing cardio, then I think this is so much more accessible. Strength training, powerlifting, whichever aspect you want to do, so much more accessible that I think the, the public realizes that would be my message. I love that. Never too late to lift. Super high level on everything you do. A um, lot of courage, a lot of ethics. Um, we, we really appreciate having you on. Really appreciate you, you know, coming and, and sharing some insights. I think you are set, you've lived such an interesting life and we look forward to following along with your powerlifting journey and uh, coming up here in March and, uh, and, and beyond that. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye. Mm-hmm.